This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz wishing you a happy All Saints Day from Wyoming Catholic College. You're listening to The After Dinner Scholar, the college's weekly podcast about the great books and the liberal arts. As I thought about creating a good All Saints Day podcast, I looked over the ones we've done in the past and came across an interview I did in 2017 with Professor Kyle Washett. I can't imagine doing a better job this year. So here is that podcast for All Saints Day with Professor Washett. The saints have no need of honor from us, preached St. Bernard. Neither does our devotion add the slightest thing to what is theirs. Clearly, if we venerate their memory, it serves us, not them. But I tell you, when I think of them, I feel myself inflamed by a tremendous yearning. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, Director of Distance Learning at Wyoming Catholic College, and your host for these After Dinner Scholar podcasts. Each year on November 1st, we celebrate the Solemnity of All Saints, remembering those brothers and sisters in Christ whose lives demonstrated heroic virtue and faith. The saints, said Pope Francis, were not superhuman. They were people who loved God in their hearts and who share this joy with others. And he goes on to say, to be saints is not a privilege for a few, but a vocation for everyone. Perhaps by happy providence, perhaps by professorial cunning, Wyoming Catholic College professor Kyle Washett is teaching Vatican II's document Lumen Gentium to our seniors, coming to Chapter 7, The Eschatological Nature of the Pilgrim Church and Its Union with the Church in Heaven, just in time for All Saints Day. Professor Washett is our guest this week to share what he and his students have been discussing about the Pilgrim Church on Earth and the Church in Heaven. Professor Washett, first, tell us about Lumen Gentium. Why was it written? What does it describe? How does it talk about the light of the nations? And how does chapter 7 about the saints in heaven and on earth fit into that? So Lumen Gentium is unique. It's one of the only two dogmatic decrees issued by the Second Vatican Council, the other on divine revelation. And the authors of Lumen Gentium see themselves as filling out the previous teaching of the First Vatican Council. The First Vatican Council had been intending to issue a dogmatic teaching on the church, the church's self-understanding of who she is. But war had broken out in Europe, and they ended up dispersing the council, and they were never able to do that. So Vatican I only issues a statement about the pontiff and papal infallibility. So Vatican II sees itself as, well, we need to talk more broadly about the church. We need the church is more than just the pope. The pope's really important for the church, but the church is the laity that make it up, the church is the bishops, the church is the religious, and the church are those in heaven. And so for the first time in the history of the church's extraordinary magisterium, so of her solemn teaching acts, we get a very comprehensive view from a church council about all of the parts of the church, the church in heaven, the church on earth, and all the members of the church on earth. And so that that's really sort of our first time of being able to engage in this kind of global reflection. It talks about the pilgrim church. What What is the pilgrim church and why does it have an eschatological nature? This is one of the things that seems to me really profound that the uh, fathers of the Second Vatican Council note. You know, we've all grown up when we go to church and we say the Nicene Creed when we profess faith in this one holy Catholic apostolic church. 
Now, the Fathers of the Council note, right, those marks, one, it's unity, it's Catholicity, it's apostolicity, and it's holiness, those are essential marks of the church. Yet, we also realize that we're the church. And so when we look around us, we realize, well, this holiness may not be this perfect ideal holiness. When I see myself as a member of the church brushing my teeth, I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm not the perfectly holy member of the church that's envisioned here. Maybe I'm not perfectly sharing the unity of faith because I don't know enough or whatever the case may be. And so the fathers of the council want to note when we're on earth, we are given these gifts of unity, of belonging to the Catholic church, of holiness, but we're given them to grow and to spread and to share them both to grow within us so that we can grow in holiness and we can share that with the wider world around. And so this, there's this way in which we're pilgrims. We have holiness, but we're meant to grow in holiness. Whereas when we talk about the eschatological nature of the church, that's the end game. Those are the people that aren't growing in holiness because they're perfectly holy. These are the people that don't need to grow in greater unity with Christ and each other because they're perfectly united. This is that where the church is going, ultimately where we're all, insofar as we're members of the church, hoping to go, is this perfect realization of holiness, uh, whereas now we're moving toward that. And still God's great big dysfunctional family on earth. Exactly. <laughs> Paragraph 49 of the document says, quote, All who are in Christ, having his spirit, form one church and cleave together in him. Therefore, the union of the wayfarers with the brethren who have gone to sleep in the peace of Christ is not in the least weakened or interrupted, but on the contrary, according to the perpetual faith of the church is strengthened by communication of spiritual goods. First, comment on the ecclesiological implications of that. What does the document assume about the church? So our first point, we were just discussing with the students uh, this on Friday, we are talking to the seniors, and noting that at first when you ask, well, is the church holy? And you're aware that, wow, I'm not perfectly holy. I, I fall short in all these ways. That the document says, well, no, no, the church is perfectly holy because the church is also in heaven. When we say there's one church, we don't mean there's a church in heaven and a church on earth and those never the two churches will meet. We mean there's one church between heaven and earth. And therefore that unity of the church doesn't just mean that I'm one member of the church with my fellow Christians in China, it also means I'm one member of the church with my fellow Christians who are already in heaven. And that sense of this kind of profound communion of faith that stresses, stretches across the centuries and beyond the limits of earth is an incredible view of the church. When we're church, we are church with the angels in heaven and we're church with the saints who have gone before us. And then the document will go on to add, as you've read, not just theoretically, but in fact, we're more perfectly one with the saints who have gone before us. That there's a way in which we're strengthened in our bond with them when they pass on to heaven. Because to be one with the church is to be one with Christ. They're more perfectly one with Christ. Therefore, we're more perfectly joined to them in the bonds of the church. And so then we think of the church being something that is stretching into heaven and then also heaven stretching back to our experience of church here. So the saints are intimately bound with my pilgrim journeying toward holiness. The saints are in fact 
what is drawing me close, supporting me in that pilgrim journey of holiness that we talked about. What does the document mean by the communication of spiritual goods? So this is, you know, again, when we raise the issue with the seniors, you know, I ask, what are the ways in which we see us falling short of what it means to be church? And we can go on and on about those ways, those ways in which we fall short in the clarity of our faith, those ways in which we ourselves fall short in our pursuit of holiness, those ways in which we fall short in spreading the faith. And if we, after you spend a few minutes talking in class, you know your students are going to get very depressed when you start thinking about all those ways of falling short. Oh, come on. They've been to Sunday dinners before. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have this sense then, okay, well, then are we just stuck? Are we just languishing? And there, it seems to me, that's where this profound sense of no, no, the saints who have arrived, who have reached that sort of eschatological fulfillment, they're not done. They're not just checking the box and saying, all right, the party's here. Because they're one church with us, they remain involved with us. And so they're going to be involved specifically in giving us these spiritual goods. And the document notes three kinds of ways they're doing that. One, they establish the church more firmly in holiness. They're giving us that help. So we're doing all the things that should make us holy. We go to church, we go to mass, we're celebrating the sacred liturgy. That is the perfection of the Christian life. That should make us perfectly holy. But we all know that we don't experience mass as that which makes us perfectly holy all the time. We know that we fall asleep during the sermon. We know we're distracted by our kids in the pews. We know if the music's off. We know if we're thinking about the football game. Whatever may happen that we do this work that's supposed to make us perfectly holy, and we're not completely attentive to it because we're present to it through these symbols, through these mediated sacramental realities. So the saints are there to help us more firmly tie into that reality of holiness. That's why we invoke the saints at Mass, why we have their statues and stained glass windows around us at church. That's why we invoke them during our lives. They're there praying for us because they know what it is to be truly holy. They're they're praying for us that we can get there better. The other two things that it notes is that they ennoble the worship the church offers to God here on earth. And then the document will say later, they are present with us at every Mass. So when we go to Mass, it's the saints who are going to make sure there's at least some people in the church praying really well, because they're going to be praying really well and be celebrating and praying with us so that at least someone's really praying so that our worship is really holy. Just like having you know the Holy Grandmother that you always hope to have, that she'll pray for her kids as they're going through their life. So the saints are like that Holy Grandmother. They're praying for us and making sure as we're praying that the prayers really have a certain dignity. And the third thing the document notes is that they contribute to the greater building up of the church. And there, again, we have the experience of they strengthen our faith when they give us help. My wife asks St. Anthony to help her find her keys all the time. And that little thing he does not because he's particularly concerned about the keys, but he's, he does it because he's concerned with giving us this sense of communion with heaven, this sense of God's involvement with our lives. And those little things, whether those be miracles, whether those be revelations, or just moments of comfort, are going to be ways that the church is built up, and then we're strengthened to keep growing as that pilgrim church. I know when I was a, uh, when I was a Protestant, the notion of the saints praying for us in heaven, that, that was a real easy hurdle for me. Mm-hmm. Jesus is in heaven praying for us, so what would his people be doing gathered around his throne. They'd be praying for us. Makes all the sense in the world. 
How does all this inform our understanding of and our celebration of All Saints Day? One of the central motifs in Lumen Gentium we have is that the church is living out the priestly, prophetic, and kingly mission of Christ. And what we're saying with the idea of saints is that the saints continue living out the priestly, prophetic, kingly mission of Christ. And they're going to be living that out specifically as a help to us in those three ways we talked about. So the saints on All Saints Day, when we go to celebrate, it's a chance for us to be especially attentive to our communion with the saints, even those that may not have been formally canonized. We know that there's more in heaven than are specifically named on the Roman Martyrology. Um, those ones that can be of help to us to help preach the gospel and the prophetic mission. We pray for the saints to help communicate the gospel to us and help us communicate the gospel to those who we'd like to communicate it to. We can be attentive to the saints helping pray with us. And again, when we go to celebrate Mass at All Saints Day, the reason that's a holy day of obligation is so that we can come and have at least one moment during the year when we're especially attentive to the saints praying with us at Mass. That's a reality at every Mass, but we want to have a special moment where we can focus on that to help us understand what their role is in our lives the rest of the time. And then the saints, we can be attentive to the saints' kingly role, right? St. Paul tells us when we go to heaven, we're going to reign with Christ. We're going to help Christ govern over the earth. Well, we have that share, as Lumen Gentium says, here is the pilgrim church on earth in governing with Christ. And the example I give to the students is you have things in your life that Christ wants you to be in charge of. He's going to want you to be in charge of your finances. He's going to want you to be in charge of your dorm room. He's going to want you to be in charge of your relationships. And you're ultimately trying to bring those under Christ's kingly authority. Well, that doesn't stop when we go to heaven. That's where the patronage of saints comes in. Right? There's saints that have a special role in the life of a teacher because they have a patronage for teachers. There's saints that have a special role in the life of a married person because they have a special patronage for married people. And Christ has especially given those things to them to have a to be able to extend his kingship to those. So again, on All Saints Day, we want to take a moment to trust in our holy brothers and sisters who have gone before us. That they're going to help us bring all things under Christ's head. So in all three of those ways, when we come into All Saints, this is a great way to have like the best family reunion ever in some ways. Um, and that, that's what we should be seeing November 1st as. In reminding us of the ministry of the saints in our lives day by day, All Saints Day strikes a blow against the great idol of our contemporary culture, individualism. While Christ's work in our lives is always personal, it is never individualistic. We are part of the church, including those who are alive with us in the present and those who have gone before us and yet are still present with us. All Saints Day is a reminder that we have the privilege of being part of this great and noble company who love, worship, and serve Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's our privilege and joy here at Wyoming Catholic College to share the riches of the great books, the liberal arts, and our faculty with you through these podcasts. And we'd be delighted if you'll share them with others. If you'd like cards advertising the After Dinner Scholar for your church vestibule or just a handout, contact us and we'd be happy to send them along. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.